Take out your Bibles once again, open to John chapter 3 this morning. John chapter 3, as we come now to the time in our service where God Himself speaks to His people. He speaks through His Word. He speaks a person. The person is Jesus Christ. He points our hearts and targets them upon Christ Jesus, His Son. And this morning we continue in John chapter 3 where we have been navigating Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, that religious man who desperately, in spite of all of his religious background and morality and good works, desperately needed to be born again. Born not through anything he does, but born by God through his Spirit, through the lifting up of Jesus Christ upon the cross and believing in him. This morning we turn our attention to John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Have you ever noticed in uh, the birth narrative of Jesus, early on in Jesus' birth story, uh, Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus to the temple and they encounter an elderly man named Simeon. And Simeon takes Jesus in his arms and just worships the Lord. Mine eyes have seen the promised one, the Genesis 3, 15 one, the promised one that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I'm holding him. I'm seeing him. And one of the things he does as he blesses this baby in front of Mary and Joseph, he says something very peculiar. He says this, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Sometimes when we're reading, we can kind of rush past that without stopping to consider what in the world is Simeon talking about? He's prophesying that Jesus is appointed for the fall and the rising of many. Because of this one, some will fall, and because of this one, some will rise. He's painting a picture of here that Jesus will be a very divisive figure. And let's be honest, from the get-go, Jesus divided. When Herod heard the news of Jesus' birth, King Herod sought to kill him. When the shepherds heard the news of Jesus' birth, what did they do? They sought a way to worship him. Two diametrically opposed responses to the very same, to the birth of the very same individual, right? Jesus continued to divide his people. You have two groups of people. We're seeing it already in John's gospel, the Pharisees and his disciples, right? Two diametrically opposed groups with regard to their thinking and their heart and their love for Jesus. The crowds in one place where Jesus goes adores him. The crowds in another place want to throw them off a cliff. Two diametrically opposed responses to the public ministry of one figure, Jesus. And this divide is not unique to Jesus. It's always been there going back to Genesis 3. You have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, don't you? There's where the dividing line comes, and Jesus is the embodiment of the seed of the woman. And so we know that he is opposed. And so in his life and ministry, Jesus divides. Jesus acknowledged this himself in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says this, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? That's what a lot of people thought. Here's Jesus' answer. No. (laughs) Let that bless you. Go and meditate on that. Do you think I came to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. From now on, from this point forward in Jesus' public ministry, from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What did Jesus just say? I didn't come to bring peace. I came and it will divide the human race. 
But more important than Jesus dividing people and relationships here on earth, Jesus' name divides people in eternity. Jesus divides people in eternity. As such, Jesus Christ, His person, His work, His all-sufficient self becomes either the hope or the hopelessness of every man. And by man, every man, every woman, every child. Jesus Christ, His person and His all-sufficient work is either the hope or the hopelessness of every man. The fact is, Christ is all. How is it with your soul in Christ this morning? Don't allow yourself to give a Nicodemus answer. Nicodemus, when he was asked, or when, when he came proclaiming his heart and mind for Christ, he gave a lot of right things to saying, yet Jesus himself said, you must be born again. I see in your heart. How is it between your heart and your soul in King Jesus? Where would you say your love for Christ is? Is it growing hotter? Is it growing colder? I ask because how you and we answer this has eternal implications. Let's turn our attention to John chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 16, and I'll read down to verse 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. The title of the message this morning is simply Jesus Christ, the hope or hopelessness of every man. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning, and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. You're a God who's recorded your voice for us in the book we hold in our hands. And Father, we are anxious, we are eager, we are earnest to hear from you today. We are here by your grace and for your glory. Lord, there's no other voice we need to listen to today but yours and yours alone. And we pray this morning you would give us ears to hear. Even as we continue to, to meditate, I pray richly and rightly and deeply upon the words of Christ to Nicodemus through John the Gospel writer. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see as you see. Help us to see your glory. Help us to see the beauty and the majesty of Christ. Help us to see ourselves as you see us this morning. Lord, as we've taken just a moment this morning to take evaluation of our own heart and how it is between our affections and Christ this morning, whether they're growing warmer or colder, Father, give us a mind to understand how we respond. It matters. It's not just to slap us on the wrist this morning, but that there are eternal implications if we are not sitting with a heart that loves Christ more than anything else, and loves the light, and loves Him, and hates the darkness, and hates sin. Father, there are eternal implications this morning. Help us. Help us to see. Help us to hear. Help us to respond. As your Spirit moves with omnipotent power upon our lives. In Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. There's two things I want us to see this morning as we think about our focus this morning is simply verses 17 and 18. Lord willing, next Lord's Day, I'll bring kind of a part two where we'll look at verses 19, 20, and 21 and kind of build some application into these things. But there's two things this morning as we think about Jesus Christ, the hope or hopelessness of every man. 
There's two things we need to see here in this text. And the first is comes straight out of verse 17, that Jesus Christ, this one that is the topic this morning and every morning, Christ com, uh, Christ's commission from the Father. Christ has come to us by way of a commission from the Father, and that commission is to rescue from judgment. Now, over the past several weeks, we've been gazing at the God-centeredness of John 3.16. It's obvious if you're even just paying attention to your Bible, we're in the verses that come right after. We're in the same context. This is still the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. The need to be born again, born again from above, how can that be? God. God does it. And John 3.16 is a God-centered response to Nicodemus. What do I do? Answer, nothing. For verse 16, God. So not for now, Nicodemus, you need to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God, and we spent the bulk of a sermon two weeks ago just focusing upon in order to feel the gravity of John 3.16, you've got to have some right thinking about who this God is. Otherwise, you will just run right through verse 16 until you come to the whosoever wills and you will turn and you will make John 3.16 about you. You will make it about it, your will. Go back to the context of John chapter 3, the, the, the passage where Jesus is, at what point is Jesus telling Nicodemus about what Nicodemus can do, what he can will to do? It doesn't fit in the context. In order to understand John 3, 16 rightly, you must begin with God. This is the application to Nicodemus. You must be born again, born from above. Well, what do I do? Nothing for God so loved the world. Not every human who's ever lived. That's not the context. That's not how John uses the world anywhere in his writings. He talks about the world not numerically, but what? Morally. He's talking about the badness of it. He's not talking about so many people. He's talking about the evilness, the badness. For God so, world, so loved a world that hated him. Who gets the glory there? God does. Not man. Not, oh, he felt sorry for us. God gets the glory. Because a world that had no interest in him whatsoever. God, holy, infinite, self-sufficient, doesn't need anything in this world. He has loved this world. Fall on your faces and tremble. How can it be? Why? There's no explanation. God so loved the world that, and it gets even bigger, he gave his only son, his monogenes, one-of-a-kind son, precious, beautiful, majestic, kingly, his son to this world who hates him and who's going to hate this son. Who gets the glory? What's this text about? The majesty of God, the grace of God, the wonder of God. Oh, God, forgive us that we have taken this passage about you and we've tried to build ourselves up about what we can do. The text is not what we can do. Scripture is clear throughout it. We do nothing. Nicodemus needs to be born again because he's been trying vehemently to try to do something. And Jesus has just been sweeping it away saying, get that out of here. The God-centeredness of a God who has a love an attribute of love that exceeds anything. Not talking about warm, fuzzy, he loves us this way, right? Not he loves us, oh, I love you all so much. That is not God's love. God's love is the love he talks about among his people. It's a choice to be faithful, to make a promise and keep it, even though you don't deserve the promise. Husbands, love your wives. Not this, oh, I just love you so much. Not do that. But you have made a choice of all the women in the world 
I commit myself to you. I covenant to you. It's exactly here, the idea God loved. He covenanted unexplicably by amazing grace to love a world to commit himself to that has no interest in him and to give his son. We have no interest. When you go back and look at John, or excuse me, the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve sin, their rebellion against God, condemnation falls upon the human race. You don't see Adam and Eve seeking salvation. What do you see them doing? Running and hiding, trying to get away from God, not running to Him, trying to seek redemption, not trying to seek reconciliation. They're running away from Him, trying to take matters into their own hands, cover themselves. It was God Himself who sought them out when they were running away from Him. And it was God, by grace, bringing them back into a relationship with Him. What God is teaching Nicodemus, what He's teaching us, is that salvation is always the work of God. It's always initiated by God. We contribute nothing, zero. Nicodemus, great answers. You're thinking on Jesus. And you must be born again. You're not even a Christian because of those right answers. Salvation is always the work of God. Romans 3.11, Paul reminds us there's none who seeks after God. The depravity of our hearts drives us away from God, not to Him. And unless God Himself takes action in the life of a sinner through the new birth, being born from above, the work of the Spirit, a soul will not run to Christ, run to Him. And that's the message of John 3.16. Oh, I pray we never, ever, ever look at John 3.16 the same way again. As though it's about us, about what we can do. We have forgotten the rest of our Bibles. The Bible's clear. We can do nothing. God has done it all. God gave his son. Today in verse 17, once again, God is spelling that out for us. There is the connection between John 3.16 and John 3.17. It is the triune, eternal Godhead who is taking the initiative in order to bring about forgiveness of sins. It is the triune God taking the initiative to bring reconciliation with the unbeliever. It is the triune God doing everything necessary to redeem a sinful man, woman, or child. And this God has done by sending His Son into the world, John 3.16, but for a specific purpose, John 3.17. There's the connection. John 3.16, for God so loved, He sent His world, His Son to the world. But exactly what was He to do? John 3.17. John 3.17 lays out Christ's commission from the Father. And what was the specific purpose God sent His Son, John 3.16, into the world to do? Verse 17, answer. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The, world, the word send right there is interesting. The word send right there is interesting because... It comes from the same Greek word that we get the word apostle from. Apostolos. And a, apostle, the Greek word apostolos means sent one, sent out one. The verb apostello, you can hear the same word, means to send. It's the same word here that's used of the Father's sending of the Son. Throughout the New Testament, the apostles, the apostoloses, had a special commission. They were ones who were delegated with authority by God. The God calls them out of the world 
for His purpose, to send them out with a commission from Him. Their authority is derived from God. God gives them the message, and the apostles take God's message out. They're always acting, they're always teaching, they're always ministering as an ambassador of God, never acting on their own, or at least theoretically. And that's the image here. Jesus is sent by God into the world. Jesus is one sent out like an apostle from the Father. And Jesus, out of the Father's love for a world who has no interest in Him, comes with a commissioning message and a mission. And I have to stop here. Don't lose your amazement that this God in verse 17, same God of verse 16, infinite, eternal, self-sufficient, overflowing with joy in and of himself, doesn't need anything from the world, doesn't need you, doesn't need me. There is nothing we can do that will add to his infinite joy and delight in himself. So there is literally nothing that we can do to enhance Him. And yet He sent His beloved Son into the world. The, word, the preposition into there carries the idea of He sent His Son toward the world. Now this is a great time, again, just to be reminded, when John uses world, what's he talking about? He sent his son to a whole bunch of people. That's not how John uses the word world ever. For John, the world is an immoral place, a bad place, a dark place. We're going to talk about that next week. We saw it in John 1. We'll see it again next week. A place that loves darkness. God is light. Anything that's not God is darkness, and we love darkness. Be amazed. This God who needs nothing from us, and we don't want anything from Him, sent His Son toward the world. I'll be perfectly honest. If you understand what God's holiness and you understand God's hatred of sin... When he says he's sending his son to the world, the last thing we should be thinking is, oh, how he loves us. If that holy God is sending his son down to the world, you know what we should be doing? We better be trembling. We're in big trouble. Why else would a holy God send his son to the world other than we're in big trouble? The king is coming to bring punishment, to bring judgment. That's what you would expect inherently if you're thinking rightly. If you're thinking about God rightly and if you're thinking about yourself and the world rightly. But that's not the movement here. He's not coming in judgment. Surprisingly, amazingly, wonderfully. He's coming to the world. And did you notice in verse 17, look with me. There's redundancy here. It seems like we live in a world today that just gets annoyed by repetition and annoyed with redundancy. But it seems to be something that God uses to highlight, to emphasize. I need you to think clearly about this because I'm doing this for my glory. Look at verse 17. How many times has he mentioned the world here? Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that in order that the world might be saved through him. When you read that, if, you, if I have any English teachers in here, if I write that sentence in a grammar paper, it's getting sent back to me for redundancy. Hey, there's a better way to say this. There's a simpler way to say Why in the world did you, you say the world three times? Let's put some pronouns in here. Let's simplify this. But God is the infinite, perfect author of his word. Every word is intentional. Any repetition we find is not, man, John, you're just not a very good writer. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's writing exactly what God intends. 
What's going on here with the redundancy of the world? The purpose is for us to understand the gravity when the Father sends His Son into the world. Make sure we're understanding John's understanding of the world. God is sending His, His, His Son into this bad place. God did not send His Son into this bad place that hates Him to condemn this bad place that hates Him. But that in order that this bad place that hates Him and has no interest in Him would be saved. Who gets the glory there? He does. He gets the glory. We fall on our faces and we say, why? This is, to go back to the last two messages, the glory of God in salvation. There is no explanation. Why does he love? Answer, because he loves. And we will spend all eternity exploring that. It's his nature. It's his character. And he sent his son into the world first negatively, not to condemn the world. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Condemn there means to judge. To judge because the world is guilty. Are we guilty? Worse than you could imagine. But Jesus' mission from the Father, his commission was not what we would expect it should have been to judge. Continuing on into verse 17, we're told what the mission was. It's not to condemn, verse 17, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So here's the purpose for which God sent his son. Into this bad place that has no interest in him, that hates him. Verse 17 that the world might be saved through him. The word saved there, again, Scripture uses all kinds of different language for salvation. Rescue from judgment is the context here. That the world who deserves to be judged by this God who made it for his glory, but this world has no interest in him, God sent his son not to judge, we might say yet, but rather to deliver from the judgment that they deserve, that you deserve, that I deserve. A judgment that every one of us are guilty before Him, every last one of us. You would think a holy God, He has to send Him to judge, otherwise you're not being holy, you're not being righteous. But this is the fullness of God's person and character. He is holy. He is righteous. But Jonathan Edwards talks about a, a, a diverse, I shouldn't have even gone here, a diverse network of complexities of God's character and attributes, things that on the surface look like they, they could not coexist in one person. In God, they exist perfectly in perfect harmony. And God is the only one, because we've sinned against him, who can rescue from judgment. That's why Nicodemus' efforts, <laughs> Nicodemus, you're saying a lot of right things about me. But there's nothing you can say or do to rescue yourself from the sin that John 2, 23, 24, 25, I know is in your heart. You're saying a lot of the right things, but I know. There can be no other Savior, no other salvation than God Himself. Now, it's worth mentioning, I won't spend much time with this. When we get later on into John's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 39, we're going to read these words from Jesus. Quote, for judgment I came into the world. And if you're paying attention, you're going to think back to John chapter 3 and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We were told clearly in John 3... God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world. But then in John chapter 9, Jesus says, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who, may see, and those who see may become blind. Well, there He's not talking about final judgment. He's, he's, still, he's not undermining the fact that He came to save. He's simply saying this, what we started out this message with that Christ is a dividing reality. 
for judgment I came into the world. Meaning, when he comes into the world, his mission, his person, his work will divide. There's the judgment that comes into the world. It's going to judge which side of the fence you're on. A lover of God, a hater of God. Do you love darkness, love light, or love darkness? Do you love Christ, or do you hate Christ? Do you believe in Christ, or do you not believe in Christ? He came not to bring final judgment, John chapter 3. But His coming did judge the world in the sense of it compartmentalized who belongs to the Father and who does not. That's the distinction. And we need to keep that in mind. But the first point here is that in amazing love for the world and kind of the application of John 3.16, Christ was commissioned by God the Father to come into the world, not to condemn it, not to judge it, but that the world through Him might be saved. Do you hear what's different between John 3.16 and 17 and what Nicodemus was trying to do? Maybe what some of us are trying to do. That the world might be saved through Christ. What Christ does. Who Christ is. Not what we've done. Not what we know about Jesus. But Christ alone. That's the first point there. Christ's commissioning of the Father, or from the Father, to rescue from judgment. That's verse 17. But secondly, this Christ who was sent, I want us to see his all-sufficiency to rescue from the judgment. Christ's all-sufficiency to rescue from the judgment. And I want to be very spiritually practical, applicable this morning. Here's the question, and you've got to answer it. What determines whether you are saved or condemned by Jesus? What is it that determines whether you will be saved or condemned by Jesus? And there really cannot be a more important question for your soul, for the souls of your children, those you love, your neighbors, because Hebrews chapter 9 says something we all know. It is appointed for man to die once. And then after that comes the judgment. Again, sometimes we rush through Scripture and we're so familiar. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Okay, but stop. Do you understand the gravity? Not the gravity of you will die one day. The gravity of Hebrews 9.27 is that after that, you stand face to face before the living God. You stand before the Holy One who we were just told this morning is perfect, is one of a kind, set apart. No blemish, no sin, hates sin. And you and I, at least in and of ourselves, are the epitome of sin. Paul says, dead in trespasses and sin. Our bodies will one day lie in a coffin. But that's not what we're afraid of. That's not what makes us nervous. That's not what makes us tremble, if we're thinking rightly. What happens next is the issue. When you stand before this God... Will you be rescued, delivered from his judgment in which you deserve? Or will you be condemned to a life of eternal punishment because he made you for him, to love him? He even sent his son into the world, his beloved son, knowing that the world was going to hate him and reject him. How is it between your soul? How was it? between your soul and His Son in your life. That goes back to the question we started with, doesn't it? It has eternal implications. Good news. This is the reality. It's appointed every man wants to die, and then comes the judgment. Good news. 
God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The world might be saved through Him. You see, verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only beloved, majestic name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Good news. This God has amazingly, unexpectedly, cannot explain it. Love this world that hates him and has no interest in him and sent his son to the world that through him salvation may come. But it's not automatic. The coming of Christ into the world, the sending of Christ in the world is not, well, now the whole world is saved. I can stand here before you and say there is a universal offer of salvation But Jesus himself says, not only not all people respond, but he says, few people respond. Wide is the way that leads to damnation. Narrow is the way that leads to salvation. In fact, the narrow gate that you read about, go and and do a study on that text. The narrow gate is not like it's so narrow, only a few can get through. It's, It's almost like a turnstile when you go into a ball game. Only one person goes through at a time. The idea here is most of the people you meet will not believe. Even if they press, profess with their lips the Lord Jesus. You say, Jake, man, how can you know that? Nicodemus! That is the warning to all of us. Judas! Those who followed Paul on some of his journeys and yet they departed from him. We have evidences over and over and over again. It's not enough to profess with our lips the right things. A lot of people believe in something that's often called justification by imperfection. You don't need to know that title, but here's the idea behind it. People know they've sinned. They know that they're not perfect, but this they also know. Nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. So listen, I mean, maybe God will accept some people's imperfection. Maybe if it's better than others. Maybe God will accept me, and here we go with that whole just as I am. Well, here's the problem with that. It's not true that nobody is perfect. It just simply is not true. One, we have God who is perfect, and then we have the God-man who came to earth who lived the perfect life for us. God cannot accept us just as I am, just as we are. If He's going to accept us, we must be as holy as He was. We must be as perfect as He is. We must be as righteous as He is. We, our, our record of obedience to His law must be we have never sinned once, not once. Never once has our motive been anything other than the glory of God. He cannot dwell with the unholy. He cannot accept anyone who does is not as holy as he is. So he simply cannot accept anyone just as they are. We desperately need a holiness and a righteousness that we don't possess. A holiness and a righteousness that we can't attain. We need, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, to be as perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. We need what God sent to the world, His Son, Jesus. We need the perfections of Jesus. 
who lived the life of perfect obedience to God's law, so much so that in John 17, he's praying, glorify me that I may glorify you. I have accomplished all that you sent me to do. We saw that this morning, didn't we? For your glory, I did it all perfectly. What we need is Christ. Somehow, we need his record of obedience to be ours. Somehow, we need his righteous robes. We need them to be wrapped around us. Somehow, we need before the Father to be seen as we have never sinned. Because he cannot accept us otherwise. And if he sees even one blip of sin, you're condemned already. What determines, going back to the original question here, what determines whether you, when you stand before God, will be saved or condemned? Answer, verse 18. Whoever believes, stop there. Whoever believes. Not whoever does this or does that. Nicodemus has already tried all that. Some of us have already tried that. Believing means you don't do anything. God has done everything. His Son has done everything. What determines whether you're saved or condemned? It has nothing to do with what you do. And doggone it, if you try to do something, you're only going to make things worse for yourself. It's whoever, verse 18, believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, read into that, not just a mental belief, anyone who undermines belief by trying to do something themselves. Anyone who tries to earn God's favor, not by believing Christ is all, Christ is sufficient, Christ's person, Christ's work, He's done it all. If you try to do anything to add to it, you're undermining His sufficiency. Whoever does not believe and tries to take matters into their own hands is condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed in the sufficiency of Christ in the name of the only Son of God. What we have here, this is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again, so what do I do? Believe. You don't do anything. When you think about your hope of eternal salvation, do not try to focus upon what you've done. The answer is Christ. Do you believe Christ has done it all? That there's nothing you can do or add. He's sufficient. Jesus is being very repetitious and redundant here. If you go back and look at John 3, 1 through 15, Oh, he has gone through this ad nauseum with Nicodemus. And he finds the need to remind again. Which means for us, how often do you think you and I need to be reminded of this? Is Jesus not hitting on a reality that all of us by nature, by nature, try to take matters into our own hands? We, the default position of our soul, of our heart, is to try to pull up our own bootstraps. Meanwhile, Scripture says we don't even have bootstraps, spiritually speaking. There's nothing we can do. And Jesus here is redundantly, repetitiously, kindly, mercifully reminding all of us of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Salvation is by grace through faith. And this, doggone it, is not of you. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of your works. You can't boast. You can't argue anything you've done. It's necessary to remind ourselves of these things. One of the ways we do this is, is certainly the Word of God, preaching the gospel to ourselves, hiding God's Word in our heart and Scripture memorization, and even the, some of the rich hymns of the faith. A song we sometimes sing, not what my hands have done. Sometimes we sing it because we need to be reminded of what Jesus is saying here in John 3.18. That song goes, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers, not all my sighs, not all my tears, but God, I'm so broken. 
I really made it this time. God does not look down and say, oh, you poor child. All right, I believe you this time. He says, look to Christ. Not all my prayers, not my sighs, not my tears, none of these can bear my awful load. But Christ can. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this way of sin. That's what Jesus is saying here. How do I know whether when I stand before this one I will be saved or condemned? Well, he could not be clearer. The one who believes in Jesus is not condemned. He could not be clearer. John says, or Jesus says in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, ceases trying, just believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who believes, he goes on to say, does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Ever since we started John's gospel, we have, because John writes that we may believe, we've talked about belief is not up here. Nicodemus had stuff up here, and yet Jesus said, that's not saving belief. We've said all along, and we're, trying, we're having to preach this to our hearts. What does it mean to believe? It's, 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 it's a direction, right? Directionally, apart from Christ's unbelief, we're moving away from Jesus. I don't need Jesus. I can do it myself. I'm self-sufficient. I'm proud. I'm boastful. I'm a pretty good person. My religious record, my moral record, I'm better than others. Believing is repenting of that, just all of it, get it out of here, and it's directionally moving towards something altogether different that is not you at all. It's moving toward the person of Christ because He is holy. It's moving toward the work of Christ because only through the cross can my sins be atoned for and I receive that record of righteousness, that record of obedience that is Christ's Only at the cross, through the work of the Holy Spirit, can that be given to me. And only there can I be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's directionally moving toward the person of Christ, toward the work of Christ. It's believing and resting in my hope is Christ. It goes back to that diagnostic question we asked at the beginning. Convince me that you're a Christian. If you answer, well, I one time, once upon a time did this, I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, repent. How do you know you're born again? John 3, 16. For God sent His Son, Jesus. And I've done nothing. Nothing. Whatever I have done, doesn't. it's Christ alone. All I can do is cling to Him. His obedience. His righteousness. His, I'm a filthy sinner. I've been so proud and prideful and hard and calloused. But I've seen God's holiness and I tremble. May I realize who I am and I'm going to stand face to face before this one. How can I know I won't be condemned and be saved? All I've got is Christ. And I'm holding on to him day after day, moment after moment, minute after minute. Belief moves away from self entirely to Christ. It doesn't trust self. It doesn't trust anything self has done. I was telling Wednesday night, a group of people, we're going through Pilgrim's Progress. On different occasions, I've been in the presence of somebody who's prayed to receive Christ, to which we rejoice. But I also make this statement to them every time. As we go forward in the Christian life, your hope of assurance of salvation has nothing to do with what we've done here in this office. When your soul is trapped and ensnared in sin, and you're trying to, how can I know I'm a Christian? Well, I remember in Brother Jake's office, I did this. No! It has nothing to do with what you did. What you do here is because at this moment you're looking unto Jesus and seeing your need. And the whole of the Christian life is not what you did in response, it's what Christ has done. You've got to look to Jesus. That's believing. That's believing. And for those who don't believe this way, verse 18 says they're condemned already. What does that mean? It means right now. Already condemned by God. Because you've rejected 
Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient sent one by God. That's what verse 18 is. Christ is all-sufficient. Christ's commission from the Father to the Son to rescue his people from judgment. Verse 18, Christ's all-sufficiency to rescue from judgment. It's all about Christ. When Peter, as we close, was preaching and healing in Jerusalem and some of the elders came to him and he was under trial because of some of the healing he had done, healing the beggar. Jesus, or excuse me, Peter says this in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. And it is by the name, he goes on to say in Acts 4, it is by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands before you in good health. By who? By Christ. Not anything this man did, not anything this man contributed. Christ and Christ alone. The point there is spiritually, it's the same. We began this morning in this first part of the sermon with the idea that the name of Jesus divides humanity for all eternity. The name of Jesus, saved or condemned. Looking unto Jesus or looking unto self, the world, maybe even Jesus plus self, but that's not Jesus. Because Jesus is the all-sufficient one. And where you stand in that divisiveness of Jesus is, do you believe His person and His work alone is sufficient? And is your hope for the forgiveness of your sins, His death upon the cross, His resurrection, it's Christ alone. And do you continue to cling to Christ? Those who are trying to hold on to themselves or their works, their efforts are condemned already. Which are you this morning? Don't toy with this God. It is appointed to man once to die. That's no shocker. Yeah, none of us really look forward to that. But there's no escape from it. The shockers, but then comes the judgment then you and I stand face to face before this God who sent His Son into the world. How have you responded to Him? Jesus Christ is either the hope or the hopelessness of every man. You either believe on Him or you don't. Oh, please, look to Jesus. And if you're not believing upon him wholeheartedly, ask God to do what he just told Nicodemus. Only he can do. Change my heart. Help me die to myself. And look to Jesus alone. His name is the name of salvation.